What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Good morning, Central Church. We, uh, we have some special guests here, I believe, in the service today. Some of our supported missionaries to Southeast Asia, Anthony and Vicki Lynch. Anthony and Vicki, if you are in here, would you stand up and just let us express our love and appreciation? Are they here? They're in the very back there. Let's... And I hope if you have not gotten a chance to meet them that you will try and do so before they leave today. I think they are soon departing for the field. Uh, we, we want to support them with our prayer. We want to support them with our financial gifts. We are very thankful for them. Glad to have them here today. We are continuing in Nehemiah. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. We finished up chapter 1 last week. I'll be reading the first eight verses from Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, remember, as you're flipping through your Old Testament, uh, if you've hit the Psalms, you've gone too far. It's kind of after the historical books and uh, just right after Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 2 will be up on the screen as well. I'm going to read the first eight verses from the English Standard Version. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He shoots up this arrow prayer. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Father, we pause and pray because we need your Holy Spirit making your word, make your word come alive to us and to probe into the places of our hearts that you want to probe. 
We pray as well, Lord, for Anthony and Vicki Lynch as they return to the mission field. We thank you for your calling on them. We just pray your blessing upon them. We pray we would be part of that blessing as a church with our prayers and financial support. Encourage them, Lord, as they return to their field. Give them grace and energy and strength for what you've called them to do there. And Lord, I couldn't go on today if I didn't pray for our nation. I'm sure many, like, uh, like me, yesterday were struck by the images in the news of what went on in Charlottesville and what that showed. And I know, Lord, many here, many across our city are grieved by the deep divide that that reveals in our nation and the hatred that we saw there. And Lord, I, I pray just believing that your heart is what we see in Revelation 7-9, that one day gathered around your throne and around Jesus the Lamb will be all those you have redeemed from every nation, from every race, from every ethnic group, from every language group. You don't see divisions like our world does. You don't see people in different groups. May we see people as you see them, Lord God. May the kingdom for us be as the kingdom is through your eyes. May we be part of the solution, Lord. We don't have answers as we watch something like that, but, but move us to pray. Move us, Lord, to love people, particularly people that are different than us. Move us to check our own hearts for prejudice, for for anything, Lord, that's in our hearts towards other people that, that would, be, uh, would not fit with your kingdom ethic. We pray, Lord God, for the healing of our nation, and we pray that you would use us as the followers of Jesus to be part of that. Now open your word, Lord, to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As, uh, as I studied and, and prayed in chapter 2 here, um, the question came to me as I think about this theme of rebuilding that we've been talking about. How do we deal with people who seem to be obstacles to rebuilding? Let me just speak very personally here. My wife Cindy and I, we have been walking alongside for the last couple months a dear friend we've known for many years, and she has a heart to rebuild her marriage. Her marriage is very broken. And we see repentance in her, and we see a desire to rebuild, but her husband has left. Her husband doesn't want to have anything to do with any discussion about rebuilding a marriage. How do you deal with that kind of obstacle? Or my own parents. My own parents are grieving right now because there's a member of my extended family who has broken off relationship and contact with the rest of the family, particularly my parents. My parents have tried time and time again to reach out to this person, to try to draw this person back into the family to see what, if anything, needs to be repaired. And this person stays aloof and apart and doesn't return contact. How do you rebuild a fractured family when somebody like that is, 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 is setting up a stone wall, becoming an obstacle? One of my closest friends in the world is also a pastor, and he's on a pastoral staff, and he's had conflict with uh, his senior pastor on that staff. They've, they've had just some basic, you know, ministry philosophy differences that occur from time to time, but 
conflict has happened and words have been spoken on either side and the relationship has become very estranged. And my friend has a heart to rebuild that relationship, not just for the sake of the church, but because he values that friendship. Right now, as he, as he makes attempts to rebuild it, all he is met with is coldness and aloofness. How do you rebuild that kind of relationship? My guess is there's not a person here who doesn't have some relationship that comes to your mind today, whether it's in your, your marriage or your family or, or at work or friendships or in this church where, where you know the relationship's fractured, you know it needs to be rebuilt. Maybe you even have the beginnings of a desire to rebuild it, but somebody or, or some group of people seem to be an obstacle to rebuilding that relationship. What do you do when you have a burden like Nehemiah to rebuild and there is someone who is an obstacle. That's, that's Nehemiah's situation. He had a vision to rebuild. We've seen this. Chapter 2, verse 17. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He wanted to rebuild the ruined city of Jerusalem, not just so it would be well protected, but so the glory of God would be seen clearly, that, that the pagan nations around would be brought to worship the one true God. He has this vision to rebuild, but he has a big obstacle. And we see his obstacle at the end of chapter 1 introduced, verse 11, now I was cupbearer to the king. The obstacle is the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. Remember, as we've seen, if you've been here the last couple weeks, Nehemiah is a Jewish exile. He either has, has been carried off as part of the Babylonian captivity from Jerusalem and brought over to Persia, or he's been born in exile. And now the Persians are ruling. And he, like if you remember the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who were also Jewish exiles, he was recognized as a young man, as someone who might serve the king. He was conscripted into the king's service and apparently he did very, very well. Apparently he's shown, kind of like Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did, and he's risen up to this place of influence where he has now this position called a cupbearer. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but let me very simply tell you what an important position this was. If you are a king and you are worried that you have enemies in your kingdom and they may try and kill you by any means possible, including poisoning your food and drink like many kings had met their demise with. You appoint somebody who is going to taste everything you drink and eat everything you eat before you eat it to make sure it's not poisoned. You are going to pick somebody who you've watched for a long time. You're going to pick somebody who you trust. And because this person's going to be in your presence a lot, at least every time you eat and drink, you're going to pick somebody that that, that you fit with. This is a highly coveted, influential, trusted position that Nehemiah has come into. So you'd think Nehemiah has an in, but here's the problem. Here's why King Artaxerxes is an obstacle to his vision to rebuild. It's already been attempted. We read back in Ezra chapter 4 that a previous group of exiles who'd returned to Jerusalem wanted to rebuild the wall and they even began the rebuilding project. But then the enemies of the Jews in the surrounding provinces like Samaria, they politically maneuvered, 
And they got word back to this same king, King Artaxerxes, that, Lord, that king, if, if you allow this, this city to be rebuilt, this is a rebellious city. They will rebel against you again. And somehow they managed to influence the king, and he buys their story. And we read the results in Ezra 4.21. The king, Artaxerxes, same king, makes a decree that these men rebuilding the wall at that time be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt. He orders the rebuilding to stop. And here's the thing. Persian kings were notorious for their rigidity about their laws once they enacted them. Maybe you remember this from the story of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. A different Persian king, Darius, had been tricked by by some, some enemies of Daniel into passing a law that, that, that if you worshiped God in the ways that Daniel did, you'd be thrown into the lion's den. They knew they'd catch Daniel in this. And yep, it happened just like they set it up to happen. The king, Darius, loved Daniel, respected and trusted Daniel. He didn't want to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Why couldn't he just change the law and save Daniel's life? We read Daniel 6.12, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. You didn't change the law. You didn't change the decrees once they had been made. So do you get Nehemiah's predicament? He has this burden to rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall. And yet he faces a seemingly impossible obstacle. He is a conscripted slave, essentially, And he is asking a powerful, unbelieving king to do the unthinkable for a Persian king, to reverse a decree he had previously made. This is the kind of thing where you could not only lose your job, you could lose your life. What would the king do when Nehemiah asked him to do this? So humanly, I'm sure that Nehemiah felt the chances of the king changing his mind about rebuilding Jerusalem were about as bleak as as maybe you feel today about rebuilding a relationship that are relationships that that you know are conflicted in your life, in your family, in your your marriage, in your work, in your church. And humanly, when we look at some of these relationships, they, they do seem to be that impossible. It does seem to be that much of an obstacle. But Nehemiah models for us here how we deal with people who we see as obstacles to rebuilding. And I want to walk you through what we see here in the beginning of chapter 8. First of all, what is the first thing that we learn from Nehemiah? Actually, this goes back to chapter 1. Wait and pray. Remember, we've looked at this the last two weeks. Verse 4 of chapter 1 I continued fasting and praying for the God, to the God of heaven. We saw that this covered a period of four months from the time that he first learned of the situation in Jerusalem till the time that he goes before the king. So even though every day Nehemiah is in the presence of the king, for four months he waits. For four months he holds himself back. You know, I have a hard time doing that. When I know I'm in a conflicted relationship, I want to jump in and try and fix it right away. But Nehemiah waits, and he not only waits, Nehemiah prays. We saw this as we looked last week at at verses 5 through 11 in in chapter 1. And by the way, that's not a one-time prayer. That's not something he prayed one time and it was recorded and he moved on. 
I think really what that is, those verses, is it's a summary of the prayer, the kind of prayer that Nehemiah prayed over and over again, numerous times a day, day after day for four months. And he fasted. Remember what we talked about fasting last week? Fasting is simply praying about this is so important to me that I'm going to sacrifice whatever gets in the way of it. So maybe that's food, which I think was the case with Nehemiah. I'm going to miss meals in order to spend that time praying. Or maybe it's sleep. I'm going, to, I'm going to get up earlier so I can spend that time praying. Or maybe it's less time on social media or less time watching television because I care about this so much, I want to see God move, then I'm going to make this time to pray by fasting, by creating the time. When we're in strained relationships, waiting is so incredibly difficult. But here's the thing. When we fail to wait and pray, when we fail to wait upon God and and through prayer hear his, his clarity, his direction and timing, we become driven by our anxiety. We become in the state where we're inwardly anxious and our actions, what we say, what we do becomes motivated by anxiety and fear not by thoughtful, a thoughtful, prayerful response. So Nehemiah's example of waiting and praying is what God calls us to, especially when we're in the midst of a conflicted relationship. Let me share with you a scripture that becomes who I am now as I seek to wait in the middle of a conflict. Psalm 4, 4 and 5. Be angry, the psalmist says, and, and yet do not sin. You get that? He doesn't tell me, deny your anger. He doesn't tell me my conflicted relationships are not going to produce that kind of emotion in me. But he says if it is possible to not sin in my anger. How do I do that? Wait and pray. Meditate in your hearts upon your bed and be still. That is a description of saying, all right, Lord, I I, want to go and I want to do what I want to initiate, but I'm going to stop and I'm going to slow down and I'm going to pray and I'm going to meditate, I'm going to process this situation with you in prayer for as long as it takes. Out of that comes, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Lord, as I pray and wait upon you, show me what am I supposed to say? What am I to do? What is the right thing that you want me to do? The right thing that you want me to say and trust in the Lord. That's waiting and praying in the midst of our conflicted relationships. Secondly, plan and pray. You know, because he waited, because he took those four months, Nehemiah had prayed long enough to hear God speak clearly to him, to hear God's direction, to hear God's timing. So when he finally speaks to the king about his vision to rebuild Jerusalem, he's prepared to lay out a plan. Look at verses 6 through 8. I gave him a definite time. He lays out a time frame for, his, for what he wants to do. He is prepared to ask him for the legal authority he will need. Verse 7, that letters be given to me to the governors, giving him safe passage, allowing him to start this work. He's even prepared to ask him for the material resources that he will need. Verse 8, give me timber to make the beams that I'm going to make. You see, waiting and praying, it's, it's, not a, it's not a passive activity. In fact, I feel that the longer that I pray and the more I pray about a challenging situation, the more God works in my heart and my mind to mend or to mold together my emotions and my thoughts 
into, into ideas and to plans. That's part of that process of waiting and praying. I love what, what commentator James Hamilton says about this, how practical he gets. Study the Bible. Pray for God to do what he has promised to do in the Bible and give thought to how and what you can do to be used of the Lord to bring his promises to pass. That only happens as we wait and pray and as we then allow that to become planning and praying. So when you think about whatever relationships you're in right now that are conflicted, as you and I, as we wait and pray for God's clarity and direction and timing for rebuilding, rebuilding our marriages, rebuilding our families, rebuilding our relationships, rebuilding our church, the Holy Spirit honors that. The Holy Spirit helps us begin to formulate plans for how to proceed and when to act and what help we need to be able to do that. Third, pray for an opportunity. Nehemiah was in the presence, again, of the king every day. I think at every one of his meals, probably. He had plenty of opportunities to initiate a conversation with the king. How did he know when the opportunity was, the opportunity we read about at the beginning of chapter 2? Nehemiah prayed for the right opportunity. He prayed for God to make it clear that this was the time to have the conversation. Look at the end of chapter 1, verse 11. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Again, I think this is a summary of what he prayed over and over. I think essentially what he'd been asking God as he prayed all those times during those four months is this. Help me, Lord, as I serve this man today. Help me as I serve him to to build trust with this man and, and by my service to bring honor and glory to your name. And Lord, as I do this, as I serve this man, show me clearly if today is the day to seek his mercy for the situation in Jerusalem. Make it clear to me, Lord, the day in which I'm to initiate this request. And that's what God does. Finally, after four months, the day comes when God gives him the opportunity that he's praying for. And you notice it doesn't come from some inner emotional feeling. It doesn't come from some writing on the sky. God just providentially makes it happen. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. He had been sad in the king's presence. In other words, four months of being burdened by something, four months of mourning over the situation in Jerusalem, four months of fasting and praying had no doubt affected Nehemiah's countenance. Now, the king didn't notice it any previous day, But on this day, recorded here, the king notices that. That is no coincidence. That is no accident. That is God answering Nehemiah's prayer, show me the opportunity, open the door when I'm to have this difficult conversation. The king notices, why is your face sad? Basically, what the king is saying is, I can see you are depressed. Tell me what that's all about. 
Nehemiah, I was very much afraid. He knows at this point, even though God is opening the door, he knows that he's not only putting his relationship on the line, he's putting his job on the line, he's putting his life on the line. How will the king react to Nehemiah asking him to reverse his decree? I've been there. You've probably been there in difficult conversations. You know God is opening the door. You know this is the time. And yet there's this fear. Uh, do I step over the threshold? But when God opens the door that we've been praying for, when God clearly makes it clear that this is the opportunity to have the hard conversation that we need to have with our spouse or our family member or our boss or some other conflicted relationship, He calls us to act courageously, seize the opportunity, because it's God who's opening this door. That's what he does. That leads to the fourth point. Pray for what to say. When that opportunity finally comes, when God opens the door for that hard conversation, what do you say? You know, I've tried to plan out those difficult conversations before they happen, and there's some wisdom in doing that. But you get in right in the moment of it, and my mind doesn't hold on to it. What do we see Nehemiah do? Verse 4 of chapter 2, So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Don't miss that. Before he opens his mouth to speak, he shoots up this silent, instantaneous, I call it arrow, prayer to God. Help! Help! Give me the words to say... This, this, kind of, this kind of instantaneous prayer flows out of those months of persistent prayer, patient prayer. And so, so it, it, it just comes naturally at that point. Nehemiah is silently asking God to help him make his request correctly, to give him the words to say so that the king will hear it correctly. And I've been in those, those situations many times, walking in, knowing this, this conversation is going to happen, knowing I'm so tempted, I'm so apt in my weakness to become angry, to become emotional in some other way that will not be helpful. And I cry out, you know, really, in essence, what we talked about last week, you are worthy, Lord, I am needy. Give me the words to say, control my spirit, Lord, control my anger, Allow this person to hear me, to hear what it is that I'm trying to say. Allow me, even if this needs to be a confrontation, to do it with love and with caring. That can all be shot up in an arrow prayer right in the moment. And praying for what to say, God, that God clearly answers that silent, instantaneous prayer because Nehemiah then displays such sensitivity in introducing the subject. Look at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He begins by affirming the relationship. Let the king live forever. I value my relationship with you, king. I'm loyal to you. I am your servant. I want to continue to serve you. This is not about leaving your service. This is not about turning my face from you. He affirms the relationship. And then notice how he goes about setting the stage to ask the king to change his decree. He explains why he, Nehemiah, is sad. He describes how he is personally impacted by the situation. The city of my fathers is in ruins and I am sad about it. I am grieved about it. 
You know, when we get into these difficult conversations in a conflicted relationship, what do we normally do? What is our default? We tend to focus on the other person, what they have done, what they are doing, what we think or are worried that they are going to do. That puts them, when we, when we go into that second person, you and they, what that does, it puts the person in the conversation immediately on the defensive. But Nehemiah models here for us how to introduce a difficult conversation. Notice he doesn't accuse, he doesn't blame, he doesn't attack. What he does is share how he feels. I am sad. He explains why that is. He explains his burden. I think there is great wisdom in that in difficult conversations where I stick to the first person plural. It's I, I feel this, I am experiencing this, I am wondering this, where I take ownership for what I feel. I don't assume motives. I don't assume what the other person is thinking or feeling. Let me tell you how I carry that into some difficult conversations that I've had, two passages that have been so significant in my life, Proverbs 12, 18, reckless words or rash words pierce like a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I've walked into too many conversations, difficult conversations, where I have not prayed, where I am speaking out of my emotion and my anger, and I might as well have taken a sword and run it through the person that I am speaking to. That's about as effective as what my words have done in some difficult conversations. But where I'm praying, and I pray right in that instant, and the Holy Spirit gets a grip on me, my tongue can be wise and bring healing. And so that's how I pray, and even now, going into difficult conversations. Lord, give me a tongue. Give me what I say that will be words of wisdom, not reckless words, not rash words, that I might bring healing to this relationship. Or Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Maybe you begin a hard conversation well, and, and you are speaking wise words, but the other person, for whatever reason, gets on the defensive, gets angry, and they lash out. It's real easy to, to answer them, to respond to their lashing out with, with anger in return. But I try and pray this, Lord, even when I may be attacked, when I may be accused in a difficult conversation, allow me to answer, to respond in a gentle way, speaking the truth but answering gently, answering gently so that uh, I don't stir up anger. I, I, actually, I actually help turn away wrath, turn away anger. Th- these are, for me, part of what it means to go into a conversation like this in a conflicted relationship, praying for what to say, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my heart in the midst of these difficult conversations. These, these are the, the, the things that we see in Nehemiah that that speak directly into to our marriages and our families, our work relationships, our friendships, our church relationships. Finally, pray and trust in the Lord. Pray and trust in the Lord. You know, God, we know the end of the story here, God clearly answered Nehemiah's prayer, but he, he did so by giving him clarity and direction and timing for how to rebuild 
And, and we see this in, in how a plan forms in Nehemiah's mind. We see it in how God has created this opportunity with the king to have this difficult conversation. But now we see the confirmation of it all in verse 8, chapter 2. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The hand of God in Scripture is the power of God. The good hand of God is the benevolent power of God that can reach even into the heart of this unbelieving king and affect his will, change his will, cause God's will to prevail over man's will. That's what God does. That is our hope in conflicted relationships. It's not, it's not whether I have the right words. It's not whether I've maneuvered correctly and gotten the right people aligned with me. Ultimately, it is about the good hand of God moving in the heart of the person who is an obstacle. At the end of the day, it wasn't Nehemiah's careful words, it wasn't his personal charm that changes the king's mind. It's our sovereign God who can change even the stubborn heart of unbelieving kings. That's really Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. There is not a ruler in this world who, 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 whether they acknowledge God or not, who God cannot change their heart and direct it to do his will. There is not a person that you or I are in relationship with that God cannot change their heart and bring about his will. That's uh, Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. I'm sure King Artaxerxes may have had some other plan in mind, but it was the Lord's purpose that was ultimately going to prevail. Just as this is true in the heart of this unbelieving king, this is as true in the heart of the person that you are in conflict with that really you're burdened with right now. And by the way, praying like this has an additional effect. It's not only about changing the other person's heart. It's about changing my heart. It's about changing your heart. There is never, I have learned, a conflict that I've been involved in where I'm 100% pure. I'm 100% in the right. And usually, even if I'm willing to admit that I have some small percentage of at fault, my fault is much greater in percentage than I really perceive it to be. And so praying, waiting and praying, allowing God to work in my heart like this, praying for words, praying for wisdom in what I say, has the additional effect of God beginning to change my heart and show me the hardened places in my heart and the places where I need to repent and the idols that I've been hanging on to and the preferences that I've been hanging on to. Again, this is our hope in conflicted relationships there's many good procedures that we can do. There's, there's me- much wisdom in how to go about having these difficult conversations. But it really comes down to this. God works in the hearts of people as we pray. God works in my heart and your heart as we pray. And so Nehemiah teaches us here, pray and wait, pray and plan. Pray for the right opportunity to initiate that difficult conversation. Pray for what to say going into that conversation and pray and trust in the Lord. By the way, I couldn't close today without noting that um, who is it that, that God answers prayer of? You know, the Bible tells us, Psalm 34, that the prayers that God hears are the prayers of the righteous. 
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. I'm not righteous. You're not righteous. None of us live our lives in such a fashion that we are good enough to be righteous in God's eyes. So how can God hear the prayers of an unrighteous person like me when I put my faith in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? Long ago, I recognized there was nothing I could do to make myself righteous enough to be saved, to be, to be good in God's eyes, to have a right relationship with him. And I thank God that he put people in my life who shared with me, but that righteousness is available through Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous one. And so when I trust, when you trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, dying for our unrighteousness, God covers us with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so when I pray, he doesn't hear my inadequate attempts to be righteous. He hears and he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ covering me, and he hears our prayers because of that. If you're here this morning and you don't know that, you're not sure that you're really covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, maybe you've never heard it quite like this, we want to make sure you don't leave here today without that being addressed. Today is the day that you can become right with God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Come forward after. I'll talk with you. I'll pray with you. One of our, our, our prayer people will talk with you or, prayer, or pray for you. We want to make sure you are right with God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So as I close in prayer, I invite you, you know, to, to consider as we pray to, and make this the subject of your prayer. What is the relationship right now or relationships that burden your heart the most? What is the relationship that, that most needs to be rebuilt in your life? Put that before the Lord, even as I lead us now in, pray, in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you and you hear our prayers because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we come forward in his name, trusting in his righteousness. Lord, you know for every man and woman here this morning, you know uh, what's burdening their heart right now. What are the relationships that need rebuilding in their lives? You know what grieves each one of us. Lord, we ask that, that you'd, you'd use your word here and you'd encourage us from Nehemiah to, to come before you and pray and pray and pray. Wait and pray for as long as it takes. Lord, we ask that as you, we do that, as we wait and pray, you'd help us formulate a plan. You'd give us clarity and direction and timing as we pray. Lord, we pray that you'd show us the right opportunity, that it would just be clear. You would open the door in, in a clear way like you did for Nehemiah when I'm supposed to initiate, how we're supposed to initiate. And then, Lord, in those hard conversations, Lord, help us to shoot up those arrow prayers, praying for what to say, looking for your spirit to guide the words that come out of our mouth and the emotions that well up in our hearts. We do all this, Lord, praying and trusting in you. You are the one that changes our hearts. You are the one that changes hearts in these conflicted relationships. We thank you that this is all possible because of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.